All right, good to see everybody. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 1? And yes, we will eventually get done with chapter 1. It's a lot here that we really need to bring out. I think the pace will pick up in the next week or two, but uh, in our study in the book of Romans, we find ourselves in a section where Paul is kind of acting like a, like a prosecuting attorney. Uh, he wants to show that the whole world apart from Christ is condemned by God. Why does he want to do this? Well, because he really wants to present the theme of the book. We find the theme in chapter 1, verse 16. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He doesn't actually get into the gospel of Christ until around verse 21 of chapter 3. So what is he doing before that? Well, he's trying to prove that the whole world apart from Christ is condemned by God. Why does he want to do that? Well, because he understands. He's the quintessential evangelist. He knows. That before a person will see their need for a Savior, they first have to be made to see themselves as sinners. And we've talked about that, all right? And so he starts in verse 18 to prove that the pagan is condemned before God. Before moving to the moralist and finally to the religionist. Now, we are currently in the section in Romans chapter 1 where Paul is proving that the natural man, in other words, the unbeliever, the pagan is condemned by God. Let's just back up to verse 18, get a running start on this section. So Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. And uh, since we've already looked at verses 18 through 20 in depth, uh, let's focus our attention on verses 21 through 25 uh, tonight. Uh, verse 21 begins with the word because, which means it's continuing the thought from the previous verse or verses. In this context, from verse 20 which in context is Paul indicting the pagan Greco-Roman world for rejecting the existence of the true and living God who has clearly revealed himself through the creation, what the theologians call natural revelation. We've talked about that. Uh, guys, the Bible says God is light. God is light. John opened his gospel by telling us that Jesus Christ, God the Son, was the light of God who came into a world of darkness. And the darkness, John chapter 1, verse 5, could not extinguish it. In the scriptures, light and darkness are used quite often as metaphors. Light is often used in the scriptures to represent spiritual truth, holiness, moral purity, and obedience toward God. And darkness is often used in the scriptures to represent spiritual error, evil, moral impurity, and rebellion against God. In John 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus is the light of God who came into a world of darkness, a world that was controlled and still is controlled by the devil. He's the God of this world. 
Now, he's not in total control, because God Almighty is over him, of course, but he is the God of this world, controlling uh, a lot of things in this world. And uh, we know that he has filled this world with his satanic lies, uh, paganism, and moral perversions. And Jesus came into a world of darkness to light fallen man's way back to God. Even as John introduced Jesus uh, in chapter 1, verse 9 of his, of his uh, gospel, Jesus was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. When a person rejects the true God and the light of his word, his truth, they open themselves up to spiritual darkness. As one commentator put it, when man, fallen man pushes out of his mind and heart whatever light God has given him, it creates a vacuum and darkness rushes in to fill the void. That's why it's so dangerous to reject the truth of God. If you accept whatever light God's given you, God will give you more and more until finally you have enough to receive Christ as your Savior. If you keep pushing the light out, hardening your heart, at one point your heart will become so hard. Well, it says to the Pharisees in John 12, they would not believe. They would not believe. They would not believe. Then it finally says they could not believe. It's what we call, or the Bible calls, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is the only unpardonable sin. Why is it unpardonable? Because it's rejecting Jesus Christ, through whom all sins are forgiven. But that's why the Bible says, look, today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, like Israel did in the wilderness. You may not get it tomorrow. Our life is but a vapor, James tells us. Here today, gone tomorrow. This might be your last chance. Oh, I'm a young person. i got plenty of time. Young people are not immune to death. Automobile accident, um, some other thing, a faulty heart that you don't even realize. Today is the day of salvation. Do not put, if the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart to receive Christ as your Savior, do not harden your heart because you may not get another opportunity. And if you die without Christ, it's forever. It's forever. So, guys, Jesus is the true light, which gives light to every man, every woman coming into the world. And uh, if a person embraces that light, they will be saved. In other words, when they, if they accept Christ as their Lord and Savior, they'll be saved. If they push the light out, Spiritual darkness comes in, in other words, spiritual error and moral impurity and ultimately paganism because we have been created by God to worship. God has made us worshipers. He wants us to worship Him, but if man rejects the worship of God, as we're going to see tonight, um, fallen man turns all kinds of things to worship because we are worshipers by nature. So Jesus Christ came into the world to light our way back to God. And again, if you embrace him, in fact, it, Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 2, if you continue in my word, you are my disciples truly. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free from the devil's lies. But you got to embrace the truth. you got to receive Christ as your Savior. Now, again, verse 21, because although they knew God, now he's talking about the pagans. Uh, you know, God has revealed himself to them in nature. Uh, but because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. We looked at that last time. That word for thoughts is a Greek word. Uh, that means um, ideologies. We, we could paraphrase it. Um, they, re they did not glorify God, uh, him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. In other words, they embraced empty, worthless ideologies or belief systems. An ideology is a belief system. You reject the truth, you embrace all kinds of, the world embraces all kinds of weird ideologies. Believes, believe in all kinds of weird things. And their foolish hearts were darkened. 
At one point, they were no longer able to comprehend truth. You don't love the truth. You don't want the truth. At one point, God will take the truth. That's a sad thing. That's why Jesus said in Luke, forgot what chapter, take heed how you hear. How you hear. I mean, people come to church and hear all the time what's being taught, preached. But they let it go in one ear and out the other oftentimes. They think because they're hearing the word, you know, it's all they need. Well, the Bible says, look, if you only come to church and hear the word, thinking that's all you need, you're deceiving yourself. We are not to just be hearers of the word. We are to be doers of the word. Why? Does that save me because I do things? No, but it's an evidence. You will know them by their fruit, Jesus said. So, you know, you can read James chapter 2 again, starting with verse 14. And don't get tripped up on the verse where James says that Abraham was justified not just by faith, but by his works. He's talking about when Abraham offered Isaac. Abraham was justified by God, Genesis 15, 6. He believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. Isaac wasn't even born yet. Isaac wouldn't be born for another 25 years, and then he was in his early 30s when Abraham offered him, which God didn't let him go through with. Many years down the road, he offered Isaac. James' point is that, look, saving faith produces works. I think it was Spurgeon who said, we are convinced that a man, a woman is saved by faith alone. But we are also just as convinced that the kind of faith that saves a man is never really alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not the result of works, lest any should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God has prepared beforehand and that we should walk in them. I mean, if Jesus comes inside and makes you a new creation, because you've received him by faith, you can't stay the same. And anyone who, who you look at their life and they've prayed to receive Christ or they've told you they have, and their life is not changing, you'll know them by their fruit. Is there any fruit? Now be careful. There are carnal Christians. You know, the fruit is not obvious. But if you look hard enough, you'll find a couple of dried up gra uh, grapes or raisins on the vine. It's there. We'd like more to see more, you know. Uh, be careful, though, because uh, we can tend to look at carnal Christians and sometimes write them off as unbelievers. Only God knows the heart. But I just want you to understand, as we go back and, and okay, I, <laughs> I stopped reading, and now I've got to go back. All right, uh, quickly, uh, verse 21. Because although, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, they embraced worthless ideologies or belief systems, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise. And some of these folks are the smartest people in our culture. They're, they're doctors, and they're scientists and professors. And I'm thinking primarily evolutionists, who many of them are brilliant people. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Again, the Greek word for fools is the word we get our word moron from. Now, I didn't say it. The Holy Spirit said it. Okay. Why are they fools? Because they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and reptiles, is the Greek. In other words, when people reject the God of the Bible, and when they do, they're rejecting spiritual light. Because God is light. When they reject the God of the Bible, the darkness of demonic spiritual deception takes hold of their heart and they become morons. Again, it's always amazed me the stupid moronic things people will believe in and worship when they reject the true and living God. It's absolutely astonishing. You know, one of the pastors at a conference I was at years ago said, look, Indian people from India, they're not stupid people. 
They come over here, they're lawyers, they're, I mean, they're engineers and they're doctors, and these are smart people. But you go to India and the children are starving because they're giving the food to the cows and other sacred animals. Their belief system has made them fools. Be careful. It's important what you believe. Oh, just not important what you believe, only that you believe something. Well, my Bible doesn't agree with that thought. Of course it matters what you believe. First of all, that's going to determine what, where you spend eternity. But the devil laughs his head off by getting smart people to embrace godless ideologies which turn them into fools. And all the while they think they're so wise. How many evolutionists, professors, scientists laugh at you and me? Because we believe in a transcendent God who in the beginning spoke and everything came into existence. They laugh at us. That's stupid. Well, what do you believe? Well, I believe, let me paraphrase. Here's what they believe. In the beginning, everything came from nothing all by itself. That's basically the only other view you got. You got the creation model, you got the evolutionary model. We've talked about that. All right. But guys, it's the height of foolishness for a person to look at the creation and instead of worshiping the creator God, they worship the creation as God. In other words, they worship animals and birds and reptiles and everything else in the natural world. I mean, this worship takes on numerous forms, polytheism, pantheism, animism, as well as monotheism. Of course, polytheism is the worship of many gods. You know, the Hindus worship 330 million gods. There's pantheism, which is the belief that everything in the natural world is God. Pantheism means all is God. They believe that God is actually an impersonal force. We'll talk about more about that tonight. But they believe that God is actually an impersonal force that fills everything and binds everything, man, animals, birds, rocks, trees, okay? Binds it all together into one divine collective. All is God. Then you have animism, which sounds similar in what they believe, but it's a little different. Animism is the belief that objects, places, and creatures all possess a distinct spiritual essence or soul. This is not really true with pantheism. Uh, but animism puts the emphasis on the thing, sometimes human, sometimes animal, sometimes places like sacred places. And all these things have a, an essence that animates these things, makes, makes them alive. Animism animates them, makes them alive, this soul or this, this essence that they have. However, I believe that the most common form of pagan worship among fallen mankind is the worship of himself as God. Let me say it again. The most common form of paganism always has been and is today where man worships himself as God. And this ultimately gets into our study in Romans. So verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like what? What's first on the list? Corruptible man. Oh, and yeah, and then animals and reptiles. But man leaves the list of all that is falsely and wrongly worshipped. Verse 24, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. The Greek word means, to, it means sexual filth, moral perversion, depravity. I mean, he'll have more to say about that as he progresses in this chapter. I'll leave it at that right now. But therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, guys, turn to John chapter 8. Because John chapter 8 contains some things, whether you realize it or not, that dovetails with what Paul is 
saying in Romans 1, verses 23 to 25. In John chapter 8, Jesus and the Pharisees have just gotten into a highly explosive confrontation with each other regarding spiritual truth. Jesus, who is the truth, came into the world, a world of lies and spiritual deception, to declare God's truth, whereas the Pharisees had embraced Satan's lies. What do you mean? They believed in Judaism. That came from God. Yeah. But it was never intended by God to make a person righteous. And I can show you numerous passages, not the least of which is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33, where God says it was going to be replaced by a new covenant. So what you have after Jesus came and was not embraced as the, the Messiah of the new covenant, now you had people like the Pharisees just clinging to religion, which says what? If I work hard enough and I do enough good stuff and light enough candles or uh, feed, give alms to the poor or whatever, else, keep the ceremonies and sacraments and feasts and holy days, I can earn heaven. That's religion. And you could substitute Judaism for any other religion. They're all built on what you have to do to earn a place in heaven if they believe in heaven. Some don't. Only Christianity is built on what God has done for us through Christ. All other religions are built on what we do for God and then what he owes us because of what we do for him. But Jesus, who is truth, came into the world a world of lies and spiritual deception to declare God's truth, whereas the Pharisees tenaciously clung to Satan's lies. Verse 44. You were of your father, the devil. Now we're just picking it up in the middle of this conversation. It started with them basically accusing him of being a bastard child. Hey, they all knew what the, what the word on the street was since he was born that, you know, that Mary was a virgin and she had a, a, a virgin-born son. Oh, come on, right. He said she had an affair. She slept with a guy before officially being married to Joseph. We all know that. So that dogged the Lord Jesus Christ for his entire ministry. So they said, you know, we were not born of fornication. No, 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 you were born of the devil. Ooh, it got gets a little... Anyways, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. The NIV translates that. He speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of it. When Jesus said that Satan was the father of lies, I don't believe he was claiming that Satan was the source of every lie ever spoken on the earth. Maybe he was. But the context, remember the context is false doctrine. The lies Satan has gotten the human race to believe that will send them to hell. When the Lord Jesus Christ talked about Satan being the father of lies, I believe he had in mind, listen, one particular lie that has given birth to many different lies, many different false doctrines and belief systems. This one lie is referenced in Romans 1, verse 25, and in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 11. It's referenced as, listen now, the lie. There's a definite article in the Greek. I mean, not just a lie, as in one of many, but the lie, as in the mother of lies. Guys, the world is full of lies, that's true. But there is one lie that is the mother of all spiritual lies that the father of lies introduced into the human race in the Garden of, e uh, Garden of Eden. And it's the lie that before it's over will cause the spiritual deaths of billions and billions of people in hell. It's a lie that has been growing. If we likened it to a tree 
in the Garden of Eden there were many trees planted that bore fruit. If we liken this lie to a tree planted in the Garden of Eden by the devil, it's a lie that's been growing and spreading like a poisonous fruit ever since the Garden of Eden and has now reached its full ripeness in these last days and will soon be voraciously consumed by, listen, most of the people of this world during the tribulation period. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. You don't have to turn to it. I'll read it to you. Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, expressly says, now he's writing to a young pastor. Paul is writing to Timothy. The Holy Spirit, Timothy, expressly says that in the latter times, the eschatological phrase for the last days, in the last days, some will depart from the faith. What is the faith? It's what Jude talked about. Earnestly contend for the faith. What is it? It's that body of truth we call the New Testament. In the last days, some will depart from New Testament truth, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Did you know that demons have doctrines? Doctrines are teachings. God's word is telling us that demons are teachers. These doctrines are what occultists and New Agers have called the cosmic gospel. That's their language. Dave Hunt, who was with the Lord, made this statement. It's the same message, this cosmic gospel. It's the same message People have heard from extraterrestrials, close encounters of the third kind, in seances, while on LSD trips, which the Bible calls sorcery and forbids, in deep yoga trances, while practicing transcendental meditation. It's the same message they've heard out of Ouija boards through mediums that are in contact with the spirit realm. It's a message that has flooded into our world, especially in these last days, from dozens of different directions, proclaiming the same thing over and over again with amazing consistency, end quote. If you didn't know better, you would think all these organizations pushing these teachings were all connected to each other. No, not really, except they are connected, whether they realize it or not, because the same devil who sowed this lie in the Garden of Eden has got his demons out, leading them astray, and each one of these groups or individuals thinks that they're so spiritually enlightened, only a few of us really know the truth. Whenever you think the truth is that exclusive, you don't have it. Because God has made his truth available to all people. But guys, this main lie is made up of four branches, using the tree analogy again, or... In other words, four doctrines that together make up the lie. The one Paul mentions in Romans 125, 2 Thessalonians 2.11. It's the same lie, I believe, that Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden. And I believe that the very lie that caused the human race to fall in the beginning is going to be the ultimate lie, the ultimate spiritual deception that Satan is going to use against the human race to bring them down in the end. I believe that this is, this is the very lie that Satan introduced into the human race in the Garden of Eden. This very lie is the lie that he will use to deceive the world during the tribulation period. We'll have a lot more to say about this next time. But the Bible tells us that at the beginning of the tribulation period, which is the last seven years of human history, before the Lord Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom. Book of Revelation chronicles this period of time. Chapter 16 through 19. But we know the Bible tells us at the beginning of the tribulation period. A world leader will arise and unite the world in a one world government. We call this leader the Antichrist. We call him the Antichrist. The Bible actually never calls him the Antichrist. 
I mean, he's got like 33 different titles. The Bible calls him by the big mouth, the little horn, a lot of different titles. Antichrist is really not one of them. We've given him that title. Well, John said the spirit of Antichrist is in the world today. Okay? But Antichrist, great, fine. All right. But this world leader will show up at the beginning of the last seven years, unite the world in a one world, uh, world government. We call him the Antichrist. The Bible also says that he will have a, a cohort called the false prophet who will unite the world in a one world religion. Together they will deceive the whole world with the exception of those who will come to Christ during the tribulation period. And guys, that will be a lot, but nowhere near how many will reject the true Christ in favor of the anti or false Christ. Paul the Apostle said that the mystery of iniquity is already at work. In other words, Satan is already preparing the world to receive this lie. And listen, has been for the last 6,000 years. Guys, the battle between God's truth and Satan's lie goes back to the beginning of time all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who traced all the major religions and cults in the world back to two primary sources. Judeo-Christianity, God's truth, and Hinduism, Satan's lie. And both of them got their start in the Garden of Eden. Let's go back to Genesis 3 and look quickly, briefly, at the lie that Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden. We won't finish this tonight, but that's okay because when we finish it next week, we'll have some extra things that I want to bring out. And then we'll move on in our study in Romans 1. But Genesis chapter 3, let's read the first five, uh, five verses. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, to Eve, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, that was her first mistake, talking to a, to a talking snake. <laughs> you know, a snake, shows up, a snake shows up on your doorstep and starts talking to you. She should have run screaming. Ah! A talking snake. She's engaged in this thing in conversation. All right? But, but the serpent, Satan, of course, um, hasn't God said you can eat of every tree in the garden? Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, guys, let me just say this. This lie that Satan told Eve was made up of four different false doctrines. You can find these four doctrines in part or in total in many false religions, cults, in the occult, and in many humanistic teachings on the face of the earth like PMA, positive mental attitude. But these basic doctrines that make up Satan's lie are, first of all, and before I get into this, some of these will be uh, more obvious than others. All right? Some of these you've got to understand where we are and what major religions uh, are in the world and then go back and see how that dovetails with or fits with what happened in the garden. Because remember now, what Satan introduced into the Garden of Eden was in its embryonic state. It's had 6,000 years to grow and develop and spread throughout the world. So here they are. These are the four basic tenets or branches that make up the lie, which is what we're looking at. The first of these is that God is not a, uh, excuse me, that God is not personal, but an impersonal force that fills the universe and everything and everyone in it. When Satan came to Eve, 
one of the things he subtly planted in her mind was the concept that the person that she had come to know as God was God, not God because of who he was, but was God because of what he knew. Verse 5, you will be like God, what? Knowing, knowing. In other words, he had learned, he had gained knowledge how to tap into a force that made him God. And now he was trying to keep her from understanding what this God force was because he did not want her to find the same divinity that he had found. So right off the bat, the devil's trying to convince Eve that God is a very selfish person. He doesn't care about you. He's only worried about himself. He's trying to keep from you, Eve, something that's good. He's not your friend. He's not a good and loving God. He's selfish. He wants to keep you from what is good. I'm your friend. The devil was inadvertently communicating to her, right? So here you have the first part of the lie. God is not personal, but is an impersonal force that fills the universe and flows through everything and everyone in it. Again, it's called pantheism. Do we have any Star Wars fans here? You're going to love these analogies. You don't know what Star Wars is? Google it and catch the first couple episodes. Anyways, that was the main message that was being preached through the Star Wars movies. May the Force be with you. May the Force be with you. You know, George Lucas, uh, who was behind those movies, and I'm just quoting him. He fancied himself as the Billy Graham of the Force. He said, by making these movies, it was my attempt to preach the gospel of the Force. He said it. Of course, a force like electricity is impersonal and amoral and isn't going to hassle you with moral standards, is it? Electricity will never tell you that's not right. <laughs> so an impersonal force is not going to hassle you with moral standards. If God is a force, then that means that I'm not held, if I believe in that, I'm not held to any personal God standard of right or wrong. Those who believe this doctrine don't believe in moral absolutes. Because the God force, they say, is in you. Therefore, all you have to do is look within yourself to find your truth. Oh, don't we know how that works today? Truth is relative. There is no absolute truth. You've got to look inside yourself. God's in you. You're God. Whatever is truth to you, that's your truth. Whatever is right for you is right for you. Whatever is wrong for you is wrong for you. But truth is relative. Well, that was kind of the message in the book of Judges. Where we read there was no king in Israel, so therefore every man did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. We've come back to that place. And by the way, that was one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. So God is not a personal God. He is an impersonal force. Number two. The second element of the lie that Satan told Eve was that there is no death. When Satan told Eve, you will not surely die. Now, you got to look at that. You eat the fruit of that tree, you will not surely die. You might experience death, physical standpoint, but not ultimately will you die. Again, when Satan told Eve, you will not surely die, he was saying to her, Eve, first of all, here's what he was saying. Eve, there is no penalty for disobeying God. No judgment, no death, ultimately speaking. You see, God had told them in Genesis 2, verse 17, that in the day they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. But Satan told Eve, God lied. God lied about the consequences of disobeying him, there is no death. Now, guys, this became the basis for the doctrine of reincarnation. 
Reincarnation is the process of spiritual evolution, for a lack of a better term. Reincarnation is the process of spiritual evolution, whereby our spirit keeps being reincarnated, I call it recycled, upon the earth into a new body. Every time this physical body dies, my spirit moves out into a new body. Why does this happen? Because they believe, Hindus and others, that every time you are reincarnated into upon the earth, different new body, live a new life, the idea is that every time a person is reincarnated into a new body, the hope is that they're going to live a more moral, spiritually enlightened life each time until they finally evolve into godhood. That's why it's a spiritual, it's, as we just said, it's like a um, spiritual evolution. Because you're evolving. Now, if you keep coming back and living a more moral and more enlightened life, eventually you'll ascend to godhood. However, if you live a rotten, lousy life, next time you'll come back as a lower form of life. I don't know. Maybe at one point you'll be a cockroach or a dung beetle. I don't know. You really mess up and you're a nasty person. You're not going to evolve. You're going to devolve. What a lovely thought that is. But listen, there is an ultimate death because if we're all part of the God force, the God force is eternal. So if my body dies, my spirit never dies because it's a, it's a part of the eternal God force. It just keeps getting recycled into a new body. In other words, there is no ultimate death. We also saw this being taught in those Star Wars movies, which promoted and taught New Age doctrine, which is westernized Hinduism. That's all it is. You remember when Obi-Wan Kenobi... <laughs> You've never seen those movies. You're thinking, oh, Obi-Wan, why? Right, you got you to gotta watch the movie. Just watch the first one. But re you remember, uh, guys, it's a guy thing, primarily. Remember when Obi-Wan Kenobi was struck down by Darth Vader? How he didn't stop existing. He continued to communicate with Luke Skywalker, listen, as a disembodied spirit, from out on the astral plane. Now this is a it's a big time doctrine of demons. That you're not going to die. You're just going to keep coming back. You know. There is no ultimate death, guys. That's what Hinduism and the New Age believes and teaches. That when we die, our spirit simply moves out onto the astral plane where we wait for a new body to be reincarnated into. And by the way, that's why Mormons, who embrace this teaching, by the way, Mormonism is a strange blend of Christianity and Hinduism. But that's why Mormons consider it a, consider a great sin not to have a lot of kids. Why? Because these spirits are waiting to be embodied into, into people on the earth. And so it's, it's a sin not to have a lot of kids because you've got to get these, these disembodied spirits incarnated. Satan uses this teaching to deceive those who embrace it into the false hope that if they blow it in this life, it's no big deal. There's always going to be another opportunity to redeem themselves in the next life. But the Word of God is, the Word of God clearly teaches, not the least of which is Hebrews 9.27, many other places. The Word of God clearly teaches that it's appointed for men, women, to die once, and after this comes the judgment. The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. The Bible teaches resurrection. However, reincarnation says there is no judgment after death. You just keep getting another chance to come back to the earth and do better next time. What do you think is more popular among most unbelievers? Christian doctrine of eternal judgment, if you don't receive Christ, or 
You get a lot of do-overs, man. It's Mulligan City. You you get all these do-overs. You know? Why oh, you messed up? Don't worry about it. You'll come back better next time. Of course, that's the big problem with the doctrine of reincarnation. It takes away the consequences of sin, which is judgment, hell, and keeps people from experiencing what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord, which it says is the beginning of wisdom. When the fear of coming judgment, the fear of the Lord, when the fear of coming judgment is removed from a society, the inevitable result is an explosion of sin rooted in self-love, just as we're seeing today. Paul the Apostle warned us of this very thing when he prophesied in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5. I won't read the whole five verses. I'll just pick out a couple things. But Paul the Apostle warned us of this very thing when he prophesied in the last days perilous times will come. What makes them perilous? First of all, men will be lovers of self in a way the world has never seen before. Lovers of money. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You can read the whole passage. Sounding more and more like the evening news. That's the scary thing, right? Now listen, and we'll close. Just give me another couple minutes because we're not going to get farther. Reincarnation works in conjunction with karma. What is karma? Karma is the spiritual law of cause and effect. What does that mean? Well, if you live a good life in this life and you're kind and you're, uh, and you're um, giving and loving to people, when you come back in the next life, people will be kind and loving to you. But if you murder somebody in this life, when you come back, you're going to have to be murdered by someone else. Karma is the law of spiritual law of cause and effect. Whatever happens in this life directly impacts the next life, for good or bad. Guys, karma doesn't solve the problem of sin. Think about this. Not like Christianity does with Jesus hanging on the cross and dying for sins, right? Karma doesn't solve the problem of sin. It perpetuates sin because every sin in this life it has to have a, 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 an equal sin in the next life. Karma is one of the cruelest jokes the devil has ever played in the human race. Why do I say that? Because it robs mankind of some of the most basic, beautiful, and important attributes of God, that God has ever given to the human race, compassion, mercy, and kindness towards our fellow man. As a true Hindu, if a true Hindu sees a person who is starving, impoverished, and begging by the side of the road, you can't go over and help him. Why not? Well, because he's working off his bad karma. And if you go over and rescue him from his situation, he's just going to have to come back again and live it all over again. He needs to work off his bad karma. Don't help him. Don't give him anything to eat. Now, does that apply to all Hindus? No. There are Hindus, no doubt, that will sometimes help others for no other reason than they're trying to work off their own bad karma. So it's a very selfish system where if I do help somebody, it's because I want to work off my bad karma, not because I love anybody. I love me, is the idea. You know, I'm going to say this without fear of contradiction. Most of the charities, hospitals, and orphanages, orphanages in the world, by far, have been established by Christians, or at least by organizations that embrace a Christian worldview. And why is that? It's because of the love of God which he has placed in our hearts as his children. It's because our God, the God of the Bible, is a loving, kind, gracious, giving, generous, and merciful God. Look, I'm not going to say that no hospital or orphanage or nursing home was never established by atheists or by Muslims or by Hindus. 
But I say this without fear of contradiction, by far. Most of these organizations that help people have been created uh, by Christians. It goes, it, what you embrace as an ideology is going to affect how you live. Right? Again, you embrace Hinduism, which believes rats and cows are gods. And you give all the food to the rats and the cows, and the kids starve to death. Tell me that's not a sick, perverted ideology. Where it's Christians, Christianity, elevates human life to a place of sacredness. Why? Because our God says human life is sacred. Oh, yeah, but God said in Genesis 9, verse 6, if a person kills somebody, they are to be killed. How was that? How was God, you know, valuing life then? Well, if you read a little farther, God says, because life is precious, and if a person takes a life unjustly, they forfeit their own. Hey, judge, judgment is mine. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You don't get to play God. If your enemy hungers, give him something to eat. If he thirsts, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head, an idiom for you might bring him to conviction and repentance. But vengeance is mine. I'll repay. God never told us to take vengeance on those who hurt us or wrong us. He says, love them, pray for them, and if you have opportunity, help them physically, food, water, shelter. Because our God is a merciful, kind, loving, gracious, and good God. And that's unique in, in all the religions of the world. Again, we said Sunday, in paganism, people died for their gods. They were sacrificed for their gods. Christianity, God sacrificed himself for us. We have 2,000 years of Christianity in the rearview mirror. This is obvious to us because we live with, have lived with the Western world for 2,000 years. If you're a first century pagan, and you're hearing about a God who loves you so much he actually died that you can get to heaven? That, Folks, that was so revolutionary it blew people's minds. This is our God. This is what Christianity is. And that's why Satan hates it. That's why he attacks it. And that's why we'll continue next time looking at the lie he has sown into the human race and why he has done it and what it's coming to. It's coming to to a, a climax. Uh, believe me when I tell you that. And we'll talk more about that uh, next time. So, Father, we thank you for your truth. It is a light that guides us through the darkness. If we walk in your truth and your light, we'll never stumble in the devil's lies, says darkness. And Lord, give us grace to understand the days we're living in. The devil, Lord, is on the move. He is ramping up his attacks and we see it everywhere. We see it in our own lives as he is attacking your people. But give us grace, Lord, to know your word more now than we ever have known it, to embrace it tenaciously, and to walk in its truth in these last days. Lord, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.